Hello, everyone. Greetings. Uh, for those of you who are first joining us, this is the uh, People Plus Art podcast. Um, this is a very special edition of this podcast episode. Um, for those of you that are not familiar, I am Mark Ruiz, uh, and I have had the good fortune uh, of introducing uh, someone who I've known for a long time. And so let me just get into it, folks. Um, originally of the Bay Area, he is a music arranger, composer, multi-instrumentalist, which is something I just found out about now, um, ethnomusicologist, this is David Castaneda. Of course, people will remember your voice. You were, you were episode number one. So it, it was such a cool way to introduce the podcast, having you on episode number one. Um, we're about, we're deep into this project now. And what I was thinking was, you know what? I have all these things coming up. I have a lot of great news that I want to share with people, but it feels like a lot of people don't really know who I am or why I'm doing any of this. So I thought, you know what? It might be really, really cool to see if Mark would be down to come on the podcast again and actually flip the script a little bit so people can get to know who I am and why I'm doing everything that I'm doing and what the podcast is meant to be. And Mark was down. So we set this up and that's what we're doing right now. So I hope everyone's enjoying it. Of course, folks. And for those of that don't know, when this man gives you a call to hop on the podcast, you answer that. So <laughs> it's an honor to be it's an honor to be uh, on this special episode uh, of the podcast. Uh, my apologies. Is it people in art or people plus art? When you see it, it's people plus sign art. I guess when you say it, for me, it feels most natural to say people plus art. Um, it, and it's, you know, and it's and I guess this can segue or I'll let, see, this is so weird. This is so weird being on this side. I'll let you segue. You tell me what you want to know. This is so odd, man. I've, <laughs> I've done so many interviews. I've never been interviewed myself. So I'll let you do this. I'll let you work. Go ahead and work. <laughs> no, no worries about that. No worries. It's hard to break out of old habits. Um, yeah. So my first question, um, which is something I think, you know, I've known you for about a good 15 years now, something like that. And I don't think I've ever asked you this question. I don't think I know this about you because when we met, we were already in band. We were already playing music and all that. What put you on your musical path in the first place? Okay, so the story is when 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 my mom was pregnant with me, she used to blast Celia Cruz. And the the story is always that the, the music would make me start to kick all the time. So she would blast it on the speakers when she was relaxing so that she could feel me kick. Uh, so I grew up, I guess, listening to that kind of music all the time. But my dad... He's original, so my mom is Chicana, and she born and raised in Oakland. Uh, but she loved R and B, hip hop, Mexican music. But she was a huge fan also of of Caribbean music. My dad is from Guatemala, and he's about thirteen years my mom's uh, senior. So he grew up listening to a bunch of Oscar de Leon. But then when he come when he came here, he loved Earth, Wind, and Fire. So some of my youngest memories with my dad are cruising in this, uh, he used to have a 60, a 69 DeVille, Cadillac DeVille, white walls, you know, like the low rider kind of thing, Cadillac or a uh, drop top, you know what I mean? So, so we yeah, would drive. Your dad, was, your dad was flexing, he was cruising fresh. That's what's Oh, yeah, he was, yeah, he was. So we would blast Earth, Wind & Fire and Oscar De Leon and all these hitters, Luther Vandross in the, in the Cadillac and drive around Oakland and drive around the Bay Area. So, um, I guess that's the beginning, you know, because I've never stopped listening to them. You know, Celia Cruz is always on my, 
in my house, you know, and Earth, Wind, and Fire, Luther Vandross, which I'm so happy to be able to. I've worked with Paulette McWilliams, who was Luther Vandross's number one backup singer, and she's always telling us stories about Luther. And to you know, to be able to make music with her was like, oh, I called my mom. I was like, Mike, guess what? You're not gonna believe it, Luther. You know, it was very, very cool. And she's amazing. She's an amazing musician, an amazing person. But that was, I guess, the beginning. And then in elementary, of course, most schools here they give you an option of of doing band like around fourth or fifth grade. So uh, I started with Recorder with Mr. Madrid, if you're listening. Thank you so much. Uh, I started with Recorder and, you know, like it was just something that I gravitated to. Uh, and then from Recorder, they have you pick, you know, if you want to graduate to some of the bigger instruments. And I picked uh, alto saxophone instead of trumpet or trombone or all these other instruments, you know. And uh, and yeah, I just, you know, it it started there. So. Never knew that story about your mom. That was new. Um, but at the same, I, 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 I'm curious, though, because, you know, we met in band, right? And, you know, all of us, we we had this some sort of drive to, to continue music in some certain way or form. Mm-hmm. Um, majority of us, though, kind of fall out. You know, I mean, they, they kind of just put down the instrument. Um, right. You, however, kept progressing until you basically became the Swiss army knife of music instruments as far as, you know, my book <laughs> is concerned. Um, what do you think kept you going, man? Oh, man. I don't know. So there was a break, right? So there was a break. Uh, so elementary school, I was playing alto. Um, and that just felt great, you know? Um, and then there was a break in middle school because the music teacher I didn't get along with so much. So there was a break. There was like three years where I wasn't in band, right? Um, that was also that also was the beginning of the divorce between my mother and my father, and it ended up being real bad, super super bad divorce. And I don't know, man. I got into a bunch of other stuff, you know. Like I just, you know, I've always had a very hyperactive mind. I needed to be doing things all the time. So, um, you know, my mom wanted me to just be doing something because if I wasn't, I was like taking apart microwaves and like toasters and stuff and like exploding them in the backyard or whatever. Like I just needed to be doing something, figure it, figuring something out. Um, so she, she always wanted me to like somehow do music or, you know, just something really. Like I was never really a sports person. Like I had played on a sports team. I was like on a soccer team or whatever. Um, but I don't know, man. Like it's just, you know, like there, there's something inherent about music that I like. In the sense that you never know, there's always something more to go, right? There's always somewhere else to go. You never feel like you've, okay, I nailed that. Maybe a little bit, but it's fleeting, right? Like it's, and that's something that was very obsessive for me as a kid that I really liked. That I was like, oh, wow, you, you know, this person did that. How did they do that? You know, oh, let me see if I can figure this out. So then, yeah, you know, things were getting really bad at home. This is middle school years, like six, seven, eight. Um... And when my dad was moving out, one of the times he was leaving the house, I was like helping him pack things in the attic, you know, and I was up there in the attic. I was getting stuff out and there was a guitar there and the guitar didn't have all the strings. You know, my dad loved music, but when he was a child, uh, he broke his arm. So he got into a school fight and he he broke his arm. So he, he was never able to do this anymore, but he always loved the guitar, you know, so he would. He was never able to, to play again. So I think he had that guitar and he would noodle, but I never saw him noodling, you know? So I saw it and I was like, wow, this is, this isn't, I've never tried this instrument. I know what it is, but I've never tried it. So then I, I just took it, you know, he left and, and, you know, I had the guitar around, so I would noodle on it. 
and I started to get like really into guitar. So I started like learning how to play songs just like on the little two strings. I had knew nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't we never we never had money for lessons or anything, you know. So I I couldn't go to my mom and, you know, hey, I want some music lessons. Like I didn't the first lessons that I ever took were later on when uh, I had started already playing professionally and I paid for them like myself. In terms of your early music influences, were did you dabble everywhere? Was there one particular artist where you you kind of had spent more time noodling? Okay, so my dad loved Trio Los Panchos, which is like, uh, Los Panchos is like bolero, is music in Spanish, beautiful music. It's like uh, they do kind of like harmonic um, harmonies with their voices, but it's like uh, guitar centered music. It's a lot of boleros, a lot of love songs in Spanish. Gorgeous music. Trio Los Panchos, Los Diamantes, uh, bands like this. They got famous even like in the Philippines and like in Africa, all over the world, you know, like they were very, very huge. Mexico, United States. So he would listen to them a lot. And that's why I would try to imitate on the guitar. But funny enough, I happened upon uh, Paco de Lucia, which is um, Spanish flamenco, like hard, hard, hardcore flamenco. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That kind of like took me through until the beginning of high school. In the beginning of high school, so there was a switch. Miss Cooley left and Mr. Draper came in. Shout out to Mr. Draper, who like changed my life in many, many ways. But what he did is when he came in, he kind of would let he would let me kind of roam for better or worse, you know, around the music room. And in the music room, there was an upright bass, there was a drum set. Shout out to shout out to Ronnell Smith, who's doing great things in the bay right now. He's still playing drums um drum all these different instruments right so he would kind of let me learn all these different parts on all these different instruments like he saw that i had kind of like an interest in this um and there was a pair of congas in the back i didn't know what they were i just knew i was like oh what is this you know so at one point i just started playing congas and it just so happened that the dance teacher at slz which is where i was going where we went to high school she was married at the time to a professional cuban dancer so I got, for whatever reason, super in, like, I just heard the congas and I was like, what is that? Like, I want to do that. That sounds so dope. And I don't even, I can't tell you how. I don't know how I figured out that the dance teacher would do Afro-Cuban dance as part of her dances at SLZ. As soon as I found that out, I never went to class. Like, I would just skip class and go straight to the rehearsals. And I don't, I don't know how, like, I'm pretty sure my mom got truancy notes and stuff. I just would never go to class. I would go straight to the rehearsals because the people that would come to, to back up the dancing were professional, Bay Area, legitimate, like, they, they were informed and trained in Afro-Cuban music. And he would come up to me. He showed me the first patterns. He showed me the first bembe patterns, uh, huido patterns on conga. You know, it was there. You know, just by happen chance. And after that, forget about it. You know, it's funny. I, th- I I saw you in there and I thought, oh, he must have something special arranged with Mr. Draper. <laughs> I did, had no idea that you were just, you just decided to go in there. Wow. Miss Davis, shout out to y'all, Mr. Draper, everyone at SLC. Miss Davis. Miss <laughs> Davis. That's what her name is. Thank you so much, Miss Davis. I would, my life wouldn't be what it is without Miss Davis. And shout out to Mr. Draper, because Mr. Draper, like, Man, talk about the importance of music educators in high school. You know, I mean, this guy, there's been many people that, you know, for better, for worse. And I only say that because I don't think he's still teaching at SLZ. You know, as as I hope we all know, uh, educators, especially in uh, the subcollegiate levels, are 
terribly underpaid and treated horribly. Like they're, they're forced to work with very little job security, very little pay, super unrespected uh, profession in this country. Why? I have no idea. But this guy, you know, there's been many people who have shaped my life. He's one of them because when he saw that I had this by high school, this is by high school. So I'm like 15, 16. He, he saw that I was taking a real interest into percussion. He goes, hey, David, uh, Fito Reynoso is playing at Yoshi's. Are you, are, you, oh, are you free like this night? And I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, oh, I'll take you, man. Like, I, I know you really like this music. I'll take you. I'll take you to go, to go, to go see them. Have you ever been to Yoshi's? And for and those that would... don't know, um, Yoshi's, for those that are listening in that haven't been to the Bay Area or anything like that, Yoshi's a very famous jazz cafe and, and jazz venue. But so, go ahead. Yeah. He paid. We sat right in the front. We saw Fito Reynoso play. Y su son de Cuba, I think is what it was. And I'll never forget this day, man, because we're sitting there and you can, you're looking up at, the, like it was the tables at the feet of the musicians. Like you can see the sweat in their faces. So we're sitting there hanging out. And this is before the show starts. So we're sitting there and it's intimate. You know, it's a beautiful venue. My favorite venue of all time. Yoshi's in Oakland, Jacqueline Square. And the timbalero comes out. So the timbales are these steel instruments from Cuba, the Cuban instruments. And this timbalero was the timbalero for Orquesta Aragón, one of the... She played with them for years. One of the best, oldest orchestras out of Cuba. Amazing. He comes out and he's like tuning up the drums. I'll never forget this, man. Like I'm just like chilling, you know, looking around, whatever. It's just, oh, it's a nice place. And I just hear, da! Like he just, a rim shot. A, a rim shot, but like the sweetest. Like I've never heard any sound so clear in my life. Like it was just... Like everything else kind of faded to the background. I just heard this sound. Just, wow, what the hell is that sound? And I look up. I had like goosebumps on my arms. You know what I mean? Like I, it was just like an out-of-body experience. And I heard the timbal for the first time. That was the first time I ever heard a timbal, a pair of timbales. And he starts playing. And he's playing these like just perfectly executed Afro-Cuban, traditional Afro-Cuban licks, like phrases on, on the instrument that come from the instrument. They're very specific to that instrument. They reflect the timbre of that instrument beautifully. Yeah. So I'm listening to this and I remember telling Mr. Draper, I'm not moving, I'm just <laughs> staring at this thing, you know? And I'm like, and all I said to him was, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. Two years later, I was playing professionally on timbales. On timb I became obsessed. Ah, oh, man, thank you for sharing that story. I got chills on that one, man. Uh, that must have been... Just, uh, I don't know, that, that feels like such a, uh, I won't say life, uh, no, yeah, I'll say life-changing moment. I wouldn't say career-determining moment, but no, it's a, that must be a life-changing moment from an artist who, you know, all of a sudden recognizes what they want to do or how they want to go. It's kind of a clarity, almost. Coming into college, right, because you went into, into your undergrad, you declared into ethnomusicology. Um, one... Um, could you give your folks, your listeners, kind of a, 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 a quick definition of ethnomusicology, just because, you know, that's a lot to break down. And two, um, when did you start to mull around with the idea of having 
looking at the person beyond the artist, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So in undergrad, I got my undergrad uh, in in music with an emphasis in jazz, essentially in jazz, studying under someone else who really changed my life in more ways that I can say in this podcast, Kamal Kenyatta, Grammy Award winning producer. Uh, I studied with him, jazz. And then when I I got my first master's at CSULA studying uh, Afro-Latin music, arranging, really, in performance. I studied with Calixto Viedo, Euro Zambrano, and uh, Paul DeCastro, arranging. Um, uh, and then by the time I got to my second master's in my MA-PhD program at UCLA, that's when I declared I got into the ethnomusicology program. So ethnomusicology is basically taking music and understanding it within its cultural context. In uh -huh. other words... There can be no music without cultural context, which, if you think about it, is true. There's, there's no way. There's no way to understand music without what it means to people, the history of the people who make it, why they make it the way they make it, why they continue to make it the way that they make it, and mm -hmm. what it means to them while they're making it, and even after they're done making it, right? All of this meaning is in the, is in the music. It's history, it's culture, it's mores, it's ideologies, it's religion, it's everything. Would you so, say, or getting a little bit deeper into that, would you say that that was an idea that you had always kind of known? Was it something that was uh, shown or or talked to you, or you know, did you did you always kind of have this feeling, and then everything else just kind of confirmed it? Um, it's definitely something that studying with Julio, I remember distinctly. You know, uh, like oh wow, okay, so this is this comes from this part of the island, this comes from this country, this comes from this time period. Yeah. Uh, when I got into the ethno program, um, it was at UCLA. Um, it was definitely different because um, there's a lot of theoretical stuff going on, right? Mm -hmm. So now, even though, the, even though the, the, the discipline itself started that way, there's many other things going on in terms of, you know, uh, we can call them perspectives, right? Different ways of looking at, uh, different ways of doing what we understand as ethnomusicology, right? There's different ways to look at the problem, different angles, okay. right? Yeah. Um, so that's a whole nother conversation that I, <laughs> I don't think we should get into. <laughs> okay. Because I, right. I have a lot of opinions Round on that. Three. <laughs> Round yeah, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next, the next podcast for sure. Kind of tracing this along now, I can now then kind of see where kind of I'm seeing you at today, which is the People Plus Art Podcast. When did this start to be an idea? When did this start, you know, uh, mulling in your head about just like, you know what, I'm going to provide that space? Well, I've always loved podcasts. I, I mean, the medium is is beautiful because you can have long form podcasts, right? I mean, we can have long conversations and they can be listened to by many people and then it can start a conversation, right? That's what I love. If, if there's been anything meaningful uh, that has come out of my graduate study, it's been that conversation is the most important thing. When people uh, tighten up and don't talk, that's when we have a problem, right? The talking is the most important thing. So I love podcasts for that. But it was really, I would say maybe halfway through the my graduate studies where I was done with the master's. So the first half is the master's and then you go on to your doctoral study. Um, and my my emphasis has always been people. I think that people are interesting, people are strong, people are complex, people are fascinating, you know, and, and the music that they make reflects all that. And the beautiful thing with music is that it connects people, or it can. It can connect people. And 
one part of the graduate study is that you you're you have to work as a teaching assistant you have to actually teach right because that's the usual route that a lot of graduate students take you know they go to grad school and then they go become a professor the problem that i kept coming up against as i was teaching was you know a lot of these ethnomusicology classes are given as general education co courses right so they're they're for people who are not musicians who don't really have an interest for looking at music in any kind of analytical way so the question was how do you make people interested in this right because you know having to teach sections to 50 you know kids who are like bored out of their mind is not fun you know so you learn very quickly that if you go against that if you meet that apathy with anger or if you meet that apathy with condescension or if you meet that apathy with shame you lose so what i started realizing was well actually you know the way you win is you make them curious that's the way you do it well why is that important and that's when i started realizing well damn you know when you make people curious about other people it then gets them curious about many things about how different people live different lived experiences different ways of doing what we understand as the human experience right oh wow now they're making connections between their own life to people they don't even know and to traditions they probably would have never been interested in before oh wow now they can go take this and give it in a way that i don't even understand i don't even know i can't foresee what the impact will be they have this ability to connect with people across ethnic boundaries across cultural boundaries across national boundaries and the thing is the end result is that you have a point of connection so that if you've never even cared about cuban culture before but then you say oh you know what i took a class and i really 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 loved bata music mm. you know you tell that to somebody who's passionate about cuban culture or even a cuban themselves there's a point of connection that's where the human can come in mm -hmm. that's what i need to be doing mm. how do you get someone curious about somebody the lived experience us people we all have to eat we all need to be loved we all want to love we all want to have fun we want to be understood and seen for who we are as we are and of course other important things right so everyone has these issues everyone has these needs we just do it in different ways i realize if i can do that in these classes everything else becomes way easier it also becomes more meaningful and they start to realize, oh, you know, there's actually people behind all this music. I'm not just learning, you know, words that I'm going to forget in a few weeks after the class is done. I'm actually learning about people. And that, I think, was the impetus for this podcast. Because I thought, well, I've spent 10 years studying music uh, from the United States, from all over Latin America. It doesn't make sense to just write a dissertation and then that dissertation be on ProQuest. So why not make some kind of something that people can consume this information everything that i research my thoughts on all this stuff and most importantly the people that i've met along this journey that i've taken in the arts which has been crazy and ups and downs and all this but the people that make it most meaningful if i can share all this with everyone else and i thought oh, podcast why not at the end of it all right at the end of the career and the lifetime um for anyone that looks into david castaneda in the totality of his life what would you want your life to express to anyone who's trying to connect i gotta think about that that you aren't alone you can find the people who accept you as you are for who you are in the way that you are and you'll find them
and you can be who that is. Um, if there's a message, I can't think, uh, I don't know if that completely answers your question, but if there's anything that I would want people to know from this craziness that my life has been so far, that I hope the craziness that it continues to be, uh, that that's the message, right? That it's, it's that you aren't alone. Even if it seems like you can't understand somebody else and people aren't understanding you, there are ways to overcome that. And if there's anything that we can do as people in societies that are ever more interconnected is that to learn how to see people as they are accept them for how they are and learn how to be more culturally and humanly sensitive the podcast is on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, and on spotify as well as youtube so be sure to share be sure to like leave a comment and interact with the podcast directly on instagram and tell me which artists you would like to see on the show next <laughs>